Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Today, the Matt Walsh Show, the Biden administration has finally found immigrants it wants to deport, only it's a family of Christian homeschoolers from Germany. Also, a professional baseball player was drummed out of the league after accusations of sexual assault. Now, those accusations have been exposed as fraudulent. His story is truly terrifying and infuriating. We'll talk about it. And a plus-sized influencer says that hotels need to do more to accommodate fat people, including widening their hallways. We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Walsh Show. Well, you know a company is looking out for you when they actually upgrade your service and don't charge you for it. This is great news for new and current PureTalk customers. PureTalk just added data to every plan and includes a mobile hotspot with no price increase whatsoever. If you've considered PureTalk before but haven't made the switch, take a look again. For just $20 a month, you'll get unlimited talk, text, and now 50% more 5G data plus their new mobile hotspot. This is why I love PureTalk. They're veteran-owned and only hire the best customer service team located right here in the great USA. Most families are saving almost $1,000 a year while enjoying the most dependable 5G network in America. Remember, you vote with how you spend your money, so stop supporting woke wireless companies that don't support you. When you go to puretalk.com slash Walsh, you'll save an additional 50% off your first month because they actually value you. That's puretalk.com slash Walsh. PureTalk, wireless for Americans by Americans. If you want to know how our leaders plan to transform this country, it's not enough to look at the millions of foreigners from the third world that they're importing into the country every year. That's obviously one of the most important parts of what they're doing, and it's clearly deliberate. We have Border Patrol agents literally fist-bumping illegal migrants on camera and uh, cutting the fence for them. But at the same time, it's also important to take a look at the kinds of people the government is expelling from the country. So don't just focus on who they're importing although that's very important, look at who they're exporting arbitrarily and by force. And if you do that, you'll learn a lot about the ideologies that our government truly cannot stand. You'll discover what they desperately want to destroy as quickly and completely as they can. So here's a case that tells you everything you need to know on that front. Just a few weeks ago, without any warning, the Biden administration decided to deport the Ramica family. They've been living in the state of Tennessee for the past 15 years. This is a family that Unlike the illegal immigrant drunk drivers and violent felons that the Biden administration will defend at every opportunity, um, has not committed any crime. So what did they do? Well, back in 2006, you and Hannah-Lore Romaika were living in Germany, and they decided they wanted to homeschool their five children because they're Christians, and they were upset about the perverted and satanic books and curriculum that their kids were being forced to read and were being subjected to in schools, which you know may sound familiar based on the experiences of lots of parents in this country. But in Germany, um, homeschooling was not allowed. There's a Nazi-era law in Germany, which is still in effect to this day, that bans homeschooling in the vast majority of cases. So officials in Germany started fining the Romaikas for uh, more than what they earn in a year 
because they were trying to homeschool their kids. Police officers showed up and dragged their kids to school. They threatened to take the children away permanently. So the Ramike family had a decision to make. And to protect their children, you and Hannah Laura Micah fled to the United States back in 2008. Now, initially, an immigration judge approved their request for asylum. Uh, but the Obama administration appealed that decision. Ultimately, a federal appeals court told the family that they had to leave the United States and return to Germany. This is a report on what happened. This is from a decade ago. This is back when all this first started. Let's watch that. The appeals court upheld the Obama administration's refusal of asylum to the Romica family. The Romicas fled Germany in 2008 facing criminal prosecution for homeschooling. They live in Tennessee. In 2010, they were granted political asylum by an immigration judge. But that decision was overturned by the Board of Immigration Appeals last year. And Tuesday, the three-judge panel of the Sixth Circuit issued a unanimous decision against the family. Uva and Hannelore Romica began homeschooling in Germany because they didn't want their children exposed to things like witchcraft and graphic sex education that are taught in German schools. Also, there were stories where they were encouraged to ask the devil for help instead of God, and actually the devil would help. We found out what is in the textbooks. Uh, it's exactly the opposite from what the Bible tells us and, and teaches us, and we wanted to protect them. So they're good parents, in other words. They're good parents and they care about their kids. Uh, can't have those types around here, can we? Now, after this decision uh, was made to deport the family, and after it was upheld in courts, there was an enormous public outcry, as you might imagine. So the DHS, under the Obama administration, did something unexpected. They allowed the Romicas to stay in this country. In 2013, the feds granted the family something called indefinite deferred action status. And that allowed them to work and to live in the United States without fear of deportation and without any timetable for leaving. So they were, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, they were free and clear. That was their arrangement for a decade. And during this period, the Romicas had two more children, uh, both of whom were born in the United States. But then on September 6th of this year, during a routine check-in, all of this changed. The Romicas learned that their deferred status was coming to an end for some reason. The Biden administration had decided that uh, they were going to terminate. They were going to terminate that status, and they weren't given a reason. There's no reason for this. They were just told, it's over, you got to leave. And they were told that they had four weeks to get German passports and that they'll be deported on October 11th, which is next week. Now, just so you, you know, because you might be wondering, well, well, did they do something? Did something happen? Um, no, nobody in the Romica family did anything to trigger this change in the federal government's reasoning. All that's happened is that the Biden administration has decided that they want to end their deferred status out of the blue. Watch. Their argument was, we've got a well-founded fear of persecution by Germany because we're in this particular social category of homeschoolers. Kevin Bowden and the Homeschool Legal Defense Association helped the Romicas fight in court. An appeals court ruled against their asylum. They have not shown that Germany's enforcement of its general school attendance law amounts to persecution against them, the judge wrote. And they're here with the approval of the U.S. government, but without permanent residency. Uwe says immigration agents asked him and his family to get German passports ready to self-deport. You know, we will be faced the same situation, same kind of persecution. Two of his children are married to American citizens. Two others were born here. He says the hardest part 
is not knowing what's next. We don't have any place to live there. Uh, I don't have any work to provide for my family over there. Now, the Ramaikas have stayed here since that ruling through an understanding with ICE. They're required to check in with immigration agents every six months to a year. Now they say they're working with their attorneys to figure out what's next. John, Robin. Hey, thank you. So a federal court uh, ruled a decade ago that this family doesn't technically qualify for asylum, even though they're in a really difficult position. And whether you agree with that ruling or not, it really doesn't matter. Even if we concede for the sake of argument that this family doesn't have a legitimate asylum claim, the fact remains that the Biden administration has spent the last several years refusing to deport millions of illegal aliens who clearly don't have any legitimate basis for asylum. And by the way, I say for the sake of argument, we can concede it. I personally do not concede that, by the way. It's obvious to me that if you flee a country because you're being persecuted for exercising your basic human right to educate your own children, you are in every sense a legitimate asylum seeker. So to me, it's quite obvious that this is a legitimate case of asylum. And especially, you know, in a, in a, a country where we're told that you're being persecuted if somebody uses a pronoun you don't like in your presence, well, I think the government coming in and, and, and dragging your children away and say, we're going to take your children away permanently if you don't send them to our indoctrination camps to learn Satanism. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a case for asylum. But the point is that we already open our arms to many illegal immigrants who have no claim to asylum at all. You know, in, in many cases, we're talking about criminals who came here simply because they want to make more money. And these criminals enjoy total protection under the, the Biden administration. In fact, Joe Biden himself is on record saying that he wants ICE agents fired if they deport illegal aliens who, who come here and then get caught drunk driving. Watch. They go off to school wondering whether when mom comes and picks them up, is she not going to be there because an ICE agent was there to arrest her? Or they take, he, she takes them to the doctor that she's going to not be there because she is, quote, undocumented and an ICE agent is going to pick them up. So how do you no, change the culture? You change the culture by saying you're going to get fired. You're fired if, in fact, you do that. You only arrest for the purpose of dealing with a felony that's committed, and I don't count drunk driving as a felony. He doesn't count it as a felony. I mean, the, the courts in uh, many cases disagree, but he does, you know, it's just, it's just drunk driving. It's just, you know, you're intoxicated, you get behind the wheel of, the car, of a car and, and you could easily kill somebody. Eh, not a big deal. So if you come here from Haiti or El Salvador and then having broken our laws to enter the country in the first place, you proceed to get completely wasted and endanger American citizens on the road, Joe Biden thinks you shouldn't have to fear deportation. And on top of that, he thinks that any federal agent who even contemplates deporting you should lose their job. But ICE has no problem going after the Ramaikas. And none of the ICE officers telling this family that they're about to be deported are worried about getting fired by Joe Biden because they're following orders. This law-abiding, hardworking Christian family is dangerous, apparently, according to the Biden government. We got to get them out. Not the illegal immigrants who come here and they're, and they're getting drunk and driving around and killing people. Not them. Um, we need to get this family out. They're, they're lawbreakers because of some technicality with asylum procedure. The family patriarch who works as a piano accompanist at a, at a small private university in Tennessee is a threat somehow. 
But, you know, the drunk drivers who could wipe out your whole family, well, we need to protect them at all costs. That, that, that's what they're saying, basically. Now, it's so absurd on its face that you have to conclude that something else is going on here. And what might that be? Well, the other day, one of the many ghouls at the left-wing propaganda outfit Media Matters said the quiet part out loud. Of course, uh, it, usually, not, usually it's not worth paying any attention to Media Matters most of the time. They're a partisan, Soros-funded operation that exists to defame and smear their political opponents. That's all they do. But as a window, and also they exist to promote the Daily Wire, and that's the part that we like. But as a, as a window into what the Biden, the Biden government and their allies are planning, it can be useful to check in on Media Matters and outfits like that every now and again. So with that in mind, here's what one of the Media Matters hacks, who uses the name Ari Drennan, posted the other day on uh, Twitter. Quote, hot take, but unless you have a very good reason, homeschooling should be illegal. Too many parents use it to abuse their children, keeping them ignorant and easy to control. Now, Drennan was responding to a video of a child pointing out that Joe Biden sniffs children and how disgusting that is. Now, of course, any reasonable, well-adjusted child would agree that it's disgusting that this old man sniffs children, but that makes Joe Biden look bad, so Eric Drennan couldn't let it stand. And in the process, the quiet part was uttered out loud, which is this. Many on the left, especially the LGBT left, have hated homeschooling for a long time because they see it as a direct attack on their ability to indoctrinate the next generation of Americans. And by the way, they're right about that. It is a direct attack on their ability to do that. So they want to outlaw homeschooling, just like they did back in Germany in 1938. They'll accuse you of child abuse if you resist their indoctrination. And ultimately, they'll try to take your children away. And then they'll do it on some pretense that, you know, which is, which is actually very funny, that homeschooled children, uh, they're, be, they're being kept ignorant. They're not being well-educated. Meanwhile, the, the government education system is churning out high school graduates who can barely read, you know, who can't point to their own country on a map, and we're churning these people out every single year by the thousands. But homeschooling, that's the real problem. And that's what this is really about. It's, it's about the, the agenda against homeschooling. It's hard to imagine another reason why the Biden administration could possibly want to deport the Ramaikas. The truth is obvious. They want to take out a symbolic target. White Christians who won't do what they're told, who won't surrender their children to the perverse propaganda that the Biden administration endorses, are the enemy of this regime. And now they're very publicly being shown the door. This is a precursor to what they're planning for the rest of us. It's also, once again, a chance for the Biden administration to humiliate its political enemies. I mean, the Ramaikas have seven children. One of them is married to uh, an American citizen named Trace Bates. And according to the Tennessee and Trace Bates, Reading now, quote, Trace Bates was photographed with his brother in crowds at a pro-Trump protest in Washington on January 6, 2021. Trace's brother, Lawson Bates, said on social media that the two attended a pro-Trump event in Washington's uh, Ellipse Park, but were not part of the riot at the U.S. Capitol. So the point is, this family definitely doesn't have the right politics, as far as Biden is concerned. Now, if they had uh, torched a Wendy's on behalf of BLM, maybe they could stay. But they like Donald Trump. At least some in the family do. I don't know what all their politics are. And they question the uh, sacred legitimacy of our infallible elections. So they have to go. They have to uproot their lives and move halfway across the world, leaving half of their family in the United States. What's interesting about this is um, back when the Trump administration tried to end the Obama-era DACA policy, courts ruled that Trump didn't have the authority to do it. 
Why? Well, because they said all those illegal migrants had come to rely on Barack Obama's decision. So even though what Barack Obama did was illegal, even though DACA was unconstitutional, all of those illegal immigrants had to stay in the country. They were entitled to rely on what Barack Obama promised them. The promise was made, and so the promise had to be kept. That was the logic. But apparently the Ramaikas don't get that luxury, even though promises were made to them. Maybe they should have gotten DUIs and voted Democrat if they wanted to stay here. That probably would have changed things. It's hard to see exactly what happens next in the Ramaikas case. Lawmakers in Congress right now are working on legislation that might let them stay in this country. They're obviously taking this through the court system. You know, so this is not, this saga is far from over. But as a sign of where things are going, the implications are pretty clear. These people do not believe you have the right to educate your children. They think that's their job. Not just their job, but their right. They have the right, uh, they have a right to your children. They own your children. That's why the Biden DOJ opened up federal counterterrorism investigations because of parents complaining at school board meetings. It's why Joe Biden's surrogate Terry McAuliffe said infamously, uh, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. It's why California just tried to pass a law saying parents could lose custody of their kids if they don't affirm their quote unquote gender identity. And it's why now the Biden administration wants to send the Ramaikas back to Germany, where they're certainly, almost certainly going to be prosecuted, by the way. You know, a few minutes ago, I said that we're uh, importing foreigners and anarchy from the third world, but really it's worse than that. We are specifically rewarding thousands of Haitians and Guatemalans and Africans who endanger their own children in their effort to cross the border, rewarding them. And at the same time, we're exporting hardworking white Christians who care more about their children than anything else in the world. Wrong politics, wrong race, so they have to go. We are governed by politicians who hate children as much as they want to control them. And whatever happens to the Ramaikas, that, that's all very clear. And like the Ramaikas, we really have only one choice in response to this, which is to disobey. Whatever the consequences, the alternative, surrendering our children to these scumbags is much worse. Now let's get to our five headlines. People always say, happy dog, happy life. Well, you know, if that's really the case, you need to be giving your dog rough greens. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black, the founder of Rough Greens, is focused on improving the health of every dog in America. Little did I know, before I got rough greens, dog food is dead food. Everybody knows that nutrition isn't brown, it's green. Well, let rough greens boost your dog's food back to life. Rough Greens is a supplement that contains all the necessary vitamins, minerals, probiotics, omega oils, digestive enzymes, and antioxidants that your dog needs. You don't have to go out and buy new dog food. You just sprinkle Rough Greens on their food every day. Dog owners everywhere are raving about Rough Greens. It supports healthy joints, improves bad breath, boosts energy levels, and so much more. We are what we eat, and that goes for our dogs, too. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black is so confident Rough Greens will improve your dog's health. He's offering my listeners a free Jumpstart trial bag so your dog can try it a free Jumpstart trial bag can be at your door in just a few business days. Go to roughgreens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700. That's R-U-F-F greens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700 today. I want to start with this. I, I almost decided to skip it today because I wanted to do, uh, you know, to, to do a monologue on it tomorrow and, and go into more detail about it. Uh, I don't want to repeat myself. Though I repeat myself all the time. But I have to at least mention it today and then tomorrow we'll uh, really break it down extensively. So here's the report from Fox News. Trevor Bauer is the uh, former Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher who won the National League uh, Cy Young Award in 2020. And a woman who accused him of beating and sexually assaulting her in 2021 
have settled their legal dispute, his attorney said on Monday. Trevor Bauer and Lindsey Hill have settled all outstanding litigation, according to Bauer's attorneys. Uh, both of their respective claims have been withdrawn with prejudice. Effective today, Mr. Bauer did not make and never has made any payments to Ms. Hill, including to resolve their litigation. This matter now at rest, Mr. Bauer can return, uh, can focus completely on baseball. The 32-year-old adamantly denied the allegations against him throughout the entire process. He uh, was placed on administrative leave by the MLB in July 2021 after the initial allegations were made. The woman accused Bauer of assaulting her on two different occasions at his home in Pasadena, California, during what she said began as consensual sexual encounters. Bauer maintained the encounters were consensual. Prosecutors declined to file charges in the case. MLB initially suspended Bauer 324 games, but the ban was reduced to 194 games by an independent arbitrator uh, in December. No major league team picked him up, but Bauer managed to continue his career in Japan. Um, Bauer sued the woman, and she countersued. Their settlement called for no exchange of money between the parties. Um, but part of the suit for uh, Bauer, and as he explains in the video we're going to play, part of the reason why he sued was for the process of discovery so that he could obtain information that would clear his name. And uh, yesterday he released on his Twitter account a video uh, with much of that information. Videos, text messages that all came out uh, during during the process of, of litigation that prove, I mean, they just, just proves that this was all this was all a setup by this woman. Um, so let's watch uh, some of this video. Next victim, star pitcher for the Dodgers. A text Lindsay Hill sent to a friend before she ever even met me. What should I steal? She asked another in reference to visiting my house for the first time. The answer, take his money. So how might that work? I'm going to his house Wednesday, she said. I already have my hooks in. You know how I roll. Then after the first time we met, net worth is 51 mil, she said. She better secure the bag, was the response. Uh, but, but how is she gonna do that? Need daddy to choke me out, she said, being an absolute whore to try to get in on his 51 million, read another text. Uh, then after the second time we met, former Padres pitcher Jacob Nix told her, you gotta get this bag. I'll give you 50,000, Lindsay replied. Her AA sponsor asked her at one point, do you feel a tiny bit guilty? Not really, she replied. Since then, her legal team has approached me multiple times about coming to a financial settlement. But as I have done since day one, I refuse to pay her even a single cent. Uh, in August of 2021, Lindsay Hill's claims were heard in court. And during those legal proceedings, critical information was deliberately and unlawfully concealed from me and my legal team. Uh, information like this video, which was taken by Lindsay Hill herself the morning after she claimed she was brutally attacked, emotionally traumatized, and desperate to get away from me. Uh, and now we have the metadata, so there can be no dispute. Uh, yeah. It was taken... Uh, so that, he says, is, is the uh, alleged victim, the woman that claimed to be a victim the morning after she was uh, raped, she claimed. And there she is, uh, lying in bed uninjured, smiling and smirking into the camera, lying next to the man that she claims uh, assaulted her. You know, one thing, I'm going to play a little bit more of this video, but one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of credit obviously goes to uh, Trevor Bauer, who uh, refused to, you know, being a multimillionaire in many situations like this. I mean, a lot of times these guys will just pay the money to make the person go away or come to some kind of settlement um, because it's 
you know, to, to them, they figure it's not worth the trouble. And I guess they probably also figure that their reputation has already been irrevocably damaged. And so all they can do is pay the money and, and make it go away. To his credit, and that's, that's, a, you know, that's the wrong strategy, but we know that that often happens. And that's obviously what this woman was counting on. To his credit, she didn't, he, he didn't do that. But also keep in mind that because he's a multimillionaire, he had the resources to go to court, pay all the expensive lawyers. They went through the, the process of discovery. They found all these text messages and these videos that he never would have known existed, certainly wouldn't have had access to without that. And now consider that like the vast majority of, of men, which means that almost certainly the vast majority of men who've been falsely accused don't have those kinds of resources. Not, they can't afford to go to court just for the discovery process so that they can find the videos and text messages that will clear their name. And that's part of the uh, tragedy and the outrage here. Especially because, you know, a woman like this, th these are not criminal masterminds. She's apparently sending text messages, laying her whole plan out, plain as day. Um, but, you know, and, and she would have gotten away with it. I mean, she still has basically gotten away with it. There's the, she has not suffered any legal penalty whatsoever. We'll talk about that in a second. But she would have gotten away with it. Even her re reputation would have remained totally intact. Um, if she had gone after, number one, a guy who uh, didn't have the wherewithal to defend himself, and number two, didn't have the financial resources to defend himself. And most men who are targeted this way don't. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Let's keep watching some of this video. Mere minutes before she left my house on the morning of May 16th, 2021, without my knowledge or consent, of course. Uh, in it, you can see her lying in bed next to me while I'm sleeping smirking at the camera without a care in the world, or any marks on her face. I think it paints a pretty clear picture of what actually happened the evening of May 15th and why the video was originally concealed from us. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, after hearing the evidence available to her, Judge Diana Gold Saltman found that Lindsay Hill had misled the court. She found her claims to be materially misleading. Uh, she denied her request for a domestic violence restraining order and she found that no sexual assault or non-consensual conduct took place. Now, some of you might not know about restraining order hearings. I know I didn't, but uh, I've since learned that uh, it's extremely rare for a request for a restraining order to be denied because the standard of proof that you need to obtain one is extremely low. So you can make of that what you will. The fact is I was never arrested. I was never charged with a crime and I won the only legal proceeding that took place without my side of the story even being heard. Uh, and most importantly, as I've said from day one, I never sexually assaulted Lindsay Hill, or anyone else for that matter. Uh, so I sued her, which prompted her to countersue me. Quite frankly, regardless of the outcome in court, I've paid significantly more in legal fees than Lindsay Hill could ever pay me in her entire life. Uh, and I knew that would be the case going in. But the lawsuit was never about the money for me. It was the only way for me to obtain critical information to clear my name. Uh, the discovery process in that lawsuit recently concluded. Pause there. Uh, so I know I said I'm going to save most of this conversation for tomorrow, but um, I don't know if I can do that because I'm just so disgusted by this video. First of all, MLB owes this guy more than an apology. Uh, they threw him under the bus completely. You know, first they suspended him, then no other team would pick him up, and uh, they deserve to be sued into bankruptcy for that. 
And same for every media outlet that ran with these allegations uncritically. You know, there, ha- there have to be some journalistic standards here. Because I know that what it usually goes is as long as they toss in that word allegedly, oh, you allegedly did this. Uh, that, that's, that's not good enough. When you've got someone making claims like this that are going to be horrifically damaging to somebody's reputation, their life, everything, and there's no evidence for it, there's no reason to believe that it's true. You've been giving nothing but the word of this one random girl. To run with that and print it, even if you say allegedly, he allegedly did this, you know, the standards need to be much stricter than that. And you know, he's being way more calm about this to his credit than I would be. I, I don't even know how he manages to talk about it without like exploding in a cloud of blind rage. His life was ripped apart by this lying, manipulative, psychopathic woman. Allegedly lying, manipulative, psychopathic woman. Now, it's it's good that these text messages are out, though, because I think it does show that um, women like this are out there, and this is how they operate. And most of us already knew that, but the illustration is still quite powerful. And the thing is, it's impossible to know exactly how many false accuser women there are in the world, just as, just as it's impossible to know how many uh, rapist men there are in the world, or rapist women, for that matter. Um, you, you hear a lot of these kind of breezy claims by Me Too advocates and feminists that well, false accusations of rape are so incredibly rare, they almost never happen. How could you possibly know that? <laughs> the nature of a false accusation uh, many times is that we, don't, we, we aren't going to know. It's, it's never going to be confirmed. So how could you, you can't count it. It's like we, we cannot come up with some quantifiable number of X amount of false accusations happen in the world every uh, year. It's impossible to know. But I will say that as far as I can tell, there's no reason to assume that there are significantly more rapists in the world than there are false accusers. There's no reason to assume that. That's the assumption that people tend to make, that there's a lot of rapists walking around in the world, uh, and as far as false accusers, there's uh, very few. It very, very rarely happens. I don't see any reason to assume that. In fact, it seems likely that these numbers are similar just because they're two sides of the same coin. You know, false accusations of rape are kind of the, the in, in some cases, the female version of committing rape. Of course, women also commit actual rape. But the point is that for a woman like this, this is how she gets her thrills. You know, it's, uh, it's how she exercises control and dominance. Uh, she probably can't physically rape Trevor Bauer physically, but she can violate him in other ways that are, that are just as bad. She can destroy his entire life. She can take everything from him. It's just as evil, just as damaging. Like if she had her way, he wouldn't have just been uh, drummed out of, the, uh, of Major League Baseball. He'd end up in prison as a rapist. That's why if we were a just society, we would, as I've been uh, arguing forever, we, we would, in a just insane society, we would treat false accusers as sex predators because that's what they are. I mean, they should be on a registry somewhere, something that men can check before they get into a relationship with a woman. 
If you commit a false accusation of rape, you should be on a, on a false accuser registry. And every time you move into a neighborhood, you should have to knock on your neighbor's door and let them know that you're there. And most importantly, before they're in the neighborhood on the registry, most importantly, they should go to prison. So this woman, if she is uh, guilty of what all evidence points to uh, being the case, then she should be in prison for the rest of her life. This should be life imprisonment. That to me seems incredibly obvious. Because I also think that if you're actually guilty of committing rape, you should also go to, to, to jail for life. At a minimum. I mean, that should be the, the minimum level of punishment for an actual sex predator who uh, commits sexual assault. And so I, I, don't, I don't even see the counter argument here. It's, it's just this is what this is justice. If you, if you uh, are guilty of a false accusation, you are trying to put somebody in prison for a long time. That's what you're trying to do to them. And so you should face the consequence that you were trying to impose on somebody else. It's, uh, I think I've said before that, that uh, you know, a false accusation of rape, it's like it's a form of kidnapping, really. It's a form of false imprisonment. You're trying, to, you're, you're trying to get someone carted away in handcuffs and put in a cage on false pretenses. And you're not doing it physically. You're not uh, running, you know, showing up with a, with a van and you know, put a bag over their head and taking them away. You're not doing that. But you're using manipulation as your method of having somebody falsely imprisoned. But of course, the qualifier here is that if we were a society that cared about justice, then that's what we would do, but we're not. So... As far as I know, this woman faces no consequence at all. Nothing. She could just go about her life, which is uh, which is outrageous, and it's and it's dangerous. Like this is a, this is a woman who is, if she's guilty of this, a danger to men everywhere, and should be treated as such. This is from Politico. Follow up to a story that we talked about yesterday. Representative Jamal Bowman is circulating a list of talking points to fellow Democrats in a bid to stop the burgeoning GOP push to punish him after he set off a House fire alarm during Saturday's chaotic spending votes. The New York Democrats press secretary sent a memo on Monday afternoon to all House Democratic offices requesting that they defend Bowman for the flap over the alarm, which has prompted a Republican push to sanction him. Um, one suggested response from Bowman's office to questions about the incident was this. This is, this is what his camp was saying. People should, you know, his defender should say, I believe Congressman Bowman when he says it was an accident. Republicans need to instead focus their energy on the Nazi members of their party before anything else. So this is the, the innovative strategy that the Bowman camp has come up with. Uh, the first ones to ever do it. Now, it's very, it's very shocking to hear, but their strategy is in order to change the subject, uh, they want to accuse their opponents of being Nazis. Never heard of such a thing. Well, this got out there and it was reported by Politico. And then Bowman himself responded and said, uh, he tweeted out this. I just became aware that in our messaging guidance, there was inappropriate use of the term Nazi without my consent. I condemn the use of the term Nazi out of its precise definition. It is important to specify the term Nazi to refer to members of the Nazi party and neo-Nazis. <laughs> Yeah, of course he does. This guy, I mean, ironically, everything that's happened since the, uh, the, the pulling of the fire alarm 
it, it, it does kind of support, in a way, his claim that it was all an accident. Because as we talked about yesterday, if it was an accident, now we know that he wasn't, like he did, he pulled the fire alarm on purpose, that's clear. But he wasn't intentionally trying to set off an alarm, he was trying to get out the door, and he pulled it in a panic. As we talked about yesterday, if that's the case, and I'm willing to entertain that possibility, it just means that he is one of the dumbest adults in the country. It, it means that this is someone who is terrifically stupid. Um, and, and, and somehow one of the dumbest elected officials in Congress, which is really sad. I mean, that's an accomplishment. And if that's the case, he should still be kicked out of office. So I don't even, to me, it doesn't matter. I don't care why he did it. This is all some sort of weird plot to delay the vote. This was him, this was him trying to get out of the door. It doesn't matter what the reason was. A moment of temporary insanity, whatever it was, he pulled it. You should, you're not fit for office. And everything that's happened since then, it's so stupid. So first, obviously at his direction, because his his camp, you know, his staffers are not going to put out this guidance on their own. So clearly at his direction, they sent out this brilliant guidance that, hey, if anyone brings up the fact that uh, Bowman pulled the fire alarm and is a moron, just call them Nazis. And then that gets out there because, of course, it does. And then Bowman responds by pretending that, oh, I never, I, I, I condemn, I never would have told anyone to say, to say Nazi. Even though he himself is on the record, even recently, personally calling his opponents Nazis. As, uh, as Michael Knowles has pointed out, he, call, he, he called him a Nazi, specifically. So this guy, so incredibly stupid. Every part, from pulling the fire alarm to every part of his response afterwards. An absolute comedy of errors. Um, and yet here's another person who's going to face uh, no consequences at all. That's the reality. All right. Uh, here's a report from, well, Andy No tweeted this out. It says, breaking, leftist journalist and activist Josh Kruger has been tragically shot dead at his Philadelphia home. Kruger has long downplayed gun violence in his city and publicly chastised others who spoke about it. So that's the story. And, uh, you know, it was going viral last night that this guy who I'd never heard of, but Josh Kruger is his name. And he was a local journalist. He's a leftist, kind of a, a, certainly a leftist, an activist. And, um, but what makes this kind of morbidly ironic is that he's on the record many times uh, downplaying the violence in his own city, saying it's not a big deal. So here are just some of the tweets that this guy has sent out previously. Uh, he says, look, it's that lawless land of liberals in Philly where shootings are dot, 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 dropping to levels not seen in years. He said, some idiot just said you're more likely to get shot and killed than die of COVID in Philly to make some insensitive rhetorical point for his side. Folks, four times as many Philadelphians have died of COVID than gunshots this year. I understand math is hard, but do better. Uh, another time he says, bro, speak for your block. Mine isn't ruined. The city isn't ruined. And just because Larry Krasner keeps winning in landslides doesn't mean that Philly is a heap of cinders and ashes, no matter how much people say. Like the rest of the country, we are dealing with upticks, upticks in crime. So those are just a few of the, the tweets that this guy has sent out. Um, you know, Not only downplaying the violent crime in his own city, but kind of making fun of the people who have brought it up and have raised concerns about it. 
And now this guy has been shot and killed in his own home. And there's a lot we still don't know about the shooting. We don't know who did it or why. Um, but again, the morbid irony is impossible to miss. To have someone who spent years downplaying violent crime in his city fall victim to it. And the point here isn't to, uh, that we're not dunking on the guy. We're not finding any joy in his death. It's simply that reality asserts itself. And the entire leftist project, the whole agenda, is to try and change reality by insisting that it's different from what it really is. Reality denial is the core tenet of leftist ideology. And that's, that's what makes leftism inherently volatile and fragile and unsustainable in the long run, is that it's built on a foundation of fantasy, of, uh, of wishes and dreams. Which, by the way, is not the same thing as saying that uh, leftism has unrealistic goals. Okay, that's, that's, that's not what we're saying. An unrealistic goal. Okay, if they were just being unrealistic. Unrealistic goal would be to say that you know, we want to put strategies in place uh, that will turn Philadelphia from a zombie wasteland into a livable, thriving city in five years, let's say. That's unrealistic. You look at a city like Philly to try to turn it around and make it into the kind of place that a sane person would actually want to live and you know, move their family to. Trying to do that in five years would be unrealistic. So that's an unrealistic goal. But leftism doesn't rise to, to the level of of unrealistic. Like unrealistic would be an improvement. Instead, it simply denies the existence of the problem in the first place. They're not coming up with wild, naive, um, you know, unworkable solutions for problems. I wish they were doing that. That would be better. No, they're just denying that the problems exist. They're not trying to turn Philadelphia into a, a wonderful place in five years. They're, they're simply insisting that Philadelphia is already a wonderful place. The crime is not an issue. And you can do that, but the problem is that reality remains what it is. And the thing is that there are elements of reality. I mean, the fundamental elements of reality can never be changed. Fundamental elements like, you know, the fact that men are not women, that sort of thing. You can't ever change that. But there are aspects of reality that can be changed. It, it is a reality right now that Philadelphia is a dangerous, horrible place. Technically, that can be changed. So that's a re you could change that reality. But you're not ever going to be able to do that if you will not acknowledge it in the first place. And leftism has become so detached from reality at this point that it cannot acknowledge anything that is real. And, uh, but the reality remains. And it will eventually, as I said, reassert itself, whether you like it or not. And, and oftentimes it, it will reassert itself. You know, when you deny reality and you deny it, you deny it, um, you are guaranteeing that eventually reality will come knocking on your door and it will say, hey, I'm still here. This is still real. You can close your eyes all you want, but here it is. You're guaranteeing that will happen. And when it reintroduces itself, it's going to be in a way that uh, you really won't like. And it appears that's what happened uh, with this guy, unfortunately. Now let's get to Was Walsh. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. John says, dude, you're so off base. What MAGA would vote for RFK Jr.? You're such a Trump hater. It clouds your judgment. Okay, well, there's two problems here, John. First of all, I don't think that any uh, any any MAGA would vote for RFK Jr. But the the issue, John, is that if you want to, we're talking about the general election here. We're not talking about the primary. Um, RFK Jr. is not going to be in the primary. He's going to be in the general election if he runs independent, which it looks all indications are that he will. Um, if Trump wants to win the general election, he needs to win more than the hardcore MAGA base. He's already got them. That's locked in. Okay. Like the kinds of people, for example, who would go to a Trump rally, uh, you're right. They're not voting for anybody else, um, period. And so he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to worry about that, especially in a general election. They're not going to vote for a Democrat or an independent. He's got them. Okay, that's not enough. You need more than that. You need, you need more in a general election. You need more than your core base support. And the issue with someone like RFK Jr. is that he would threaten to peel away some of those people who are not part of your core base. They might not even like you that much. There might be things about you that they really hate, but they would still vote for you because they don't see any other option that is more appealing to them. Like there are a lot of people, if the option is Biden or Trump, they might not even like Trump that much, but they would look at Biden and say, well, I can't vote for that. I've been living through that for four years. I'm not going to vote for him again. So I, you know, I'll just vote for Trump. Um, and that will still happen, even with RFK Jr. in the race. But the, the, the risk is that with RFK Jr. in there, um, some of those people who say, I don't, I don't love Trump, but I really hate Biden. Now, some of those people are going to say, well, there's a, there's a third option now, and I'll vote for uh, RFK Jr. You know, it's kind of a pro, it's more of a protest vote or whatever. It's a, you know, it, it, most of them, I think, are going to be aware that he's not really going to win, but they're voting for him uh, anyway. And that that's the concern. It's a very real concern. Like, nothing that I'm saying here is outlandish, Okay. Um, RFK Jr. himself has has a, a base of supporters. He's got some excitement around him, not to the level of Trump, but he's got enough that it could be a problem. And he's also, and but the biggest issue is that kind of his brand, his political brand, is that he's anti-establishment. And so people who, the anti-establishment vote in general is bigger than the MAGA vote. Um. And so he's going to peel away some of those people who otherwise would go to Trump. So that's the first issue. The second issue is you say, uh, a Trump hater clouds your judgment. This is not Trump hate. Okay, what did we just talk about? Acknowledging reality. If you want to win an election, you have to acknowledge political realities. Denying political realities is not a smart thing to do if you actually support a candidate. So me saying that this is going to be a challenge for Trump, and, and, and I didn't just say it's a challenge. I also offered a suggestion on some things that he could do to navigate around it. Really, it's two things. I mean, really, it's, it's one thing with, with two facets to it. And the, the big thing is 
treat RFK Jr. like an ally, be supportive of him, even act like you're happy he's in the race, and publicly offer him a, a position in your cabinet. I think if Trump does that, then RFK Jr. becomes less of a problem for him because Trump becomes a, a, a place where RFK Jr. supporters can say, hey, you know, uh, they can could, they could look at it and say, look, RFK is not going to win, but uh, Trump is, is, is not bad either. And he's, you know, they're, they're on the same team. And so I'll go for Trump. Um, so that's a suggestion for something that he could do. Uh, if he goes the other way, if he does what he typically does and just lays into RFK Jr. and mocks him and belittles him and does the usual routine, I think it's going to backfire tremendously in this case. But all of this, it's just about acknowledging political realities. Um, and if you actually want your candidate to win, you should be acknowledging those realities. Okay, it's, You're not being a hater by just looking at the political landscape and saying, oh, this is what it looks like. I don't have to like it. There, there's a lot about the political landscape that I don't like. Okay, I've already said that no matter who is the Republican nominee, there just isn't going to be a landslide in favor of that Republican nominee. It's going to be very challenging to beat the Democrat just because of the, because of how the system works now. Um, and I wish that wasn't the case. I'm not saying it because I like it. There's a lot about the culture that I don't like, but it still is. And so we should acknowledge that. Another comment says, after listening, I believe that it was clearly not intentional. He thought it would will be something like a buzzer by the door, not the whole building's fire alarm. When the alarm started, he panicked, realizing he effed up and ran. It's that simple. How could he think it's a buzzer for the door? It says fire on it. it fire alarms look the same. It, 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 they have to. Fire alarms look the same in every building in, in the country. Okay, it's it, there's one. We all know what a fire alarm looks like. When have you ever seen a buzzer by the door that looks like a... First of all, when have you ever seen a buzzer by the door that you have to pull down? It's not even a button. You have to, you have to grab it and pull it. And maybe you have seen something like that. But I tell you one thing, it didn't say fire on it. Another comment says, I've done this exact thing. We have the same sign where I work. Everybody at work has done it at least once. And it's embarrassing every time because it calls the police. The sign does not say it will call the police, nor does it say emergency exit only. It says hold for 10 seconds, the alarm will sound, and then the door will open. It doesn't say the alarm will continue to go off until police arrive. The way it's worded makes it very confusing, and everyone falls for it once. How? Where, I, where do you work? I need to know where you work specifically. I, 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 I can't believe this comment. I don't know if I want to believe it or I don't. You're t okay, you're telling me you work at a place where not only is everyone so stupid that they have all pulled fire alarms accidentally, but that it keeps happening? So would, wouldn't it only need to happen once before everyone in your building understands? I mean, really, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have to happen even one time because we all know what a fire exit looks like, you would think. But let's just say you work at a place, you happen to work at a place where it is the biggest collection of imbeciles ever assembled in one location. And... Um, which makes me think that maybe they, that you work in Congress, but the problem is that only one congressman has done this as far as we know. So let's just say you work at a place like that. And everyone, in the, you, you work with a bunch of oblivious idiots who are just wandering around. A fire alarm? I don't know what that is. What's a fire alarm? Never heard of it. 
Well, after one person does it, wouldn't everyone realize, oh, well, that's what that does. Let's not go out that door. You're telling me that everybody, you, it keeps happening? Every day another person wanders out the fire exit? We have to relearn this lesson over and over again? What is this, like a memento or something? Everybody there has a, has a memory that only goes back 10 seconds? I need more. I need to know more. You need to tell. I need to know where exactly you work. That this is happening on a regular basis. This is a big. This is actually a big story. I need to know more. Faith Moore, Andrew Clavin's talented daughter, has written a new rendition of the age-old Christmas classic, A Christmas Carol. Except this time, it's with a K. It's a modern twist on the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, except with a female protagonist in a world where boss babes are champion at the expense of family, Faith is making the case that having what matters is far better than having it all. A Christmas Carol now uh, available for pre-order. You can get it now. Order yours on Amazon or wherever you get your books today. Now let's get to our daily cancel. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, right? Gathering information, you get buy-in from every team. Uh, you know, following up, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. Today for our daily cancellation, we return, sadly, to the world of plus-sized influencers. Jalen Cheney bills herself as a plus-sized travel, fashion, and lifestyle creator. And what she creates, apparently, are mostly just vlogs where she complains about not being able to maneuver around in various public spaces because of her massive circumference. But this is not her fault, of course. It's the fault of the rest of the world for not including her. The New York Post reports, quote, A plus-sized influencer who previously demanded airlines comp larger passengers for extra seats is now asking hotels around the world to make a number of changes to better accommodate overweight guests. In a video posted to her TikTok last month, Jalen Cheney listed several ways hotels can create size-inclusive amenities. In the caption, Cheney wrote, quote, Creating a space where every guest feels valued and comfortable is essential. Size-inclusive hotel amenities are more than just accommodations. They're a statement of respect for diverse needs and body types. So she set her sights on the hotel industry, putting together a tutorial to instruct hotels on changes they need to make to better accommodate human beings who have ballooned to the size of a minivan. Um, here are her tips. I'm on a mission to revolutionize the travel industry and make it a more accessible, accepting, accommodating place for all. The needs of plus size travelers matter just as much as anybody else. And today I'm gonna to cover what we are looking for in accessible size inclusive hotel amenities. Size inclusive hotel amenities are crucial for ensuring that plus size travelers feel welcomed, accommodated and comfortable during their stay. We deserve an environment that respects our needs and body diversity. Now, just pause there for a second because two things. First of all, this is what innovation is these days. I mean, we used to live in a very innovative country. And if somebody said, I'm going to revolutionize the hotel industry, it's because they had some sort of uh, some sort of invention, some sort of 
business model that they've come up with, something very exciting. I'm going to revolutionize the industry. Now, uh, if they say they're going to revolutionize the industry, it's just by complaining. I'm going to revolutionize the industry by complaining about it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to complain a lot. It's going to be revolutionary. She also says that she deserves. She deserves a place where she feels comfortable and all that. Why do you deserve that exactly? Yeah, people have gotten so used to throwing around the word deserved these days, but they rarely bother explaining where this entitlement comes from or how they know they have it. Because if you deserve something, it means that you have earned it. You have become worthy of it. By definition, that's what it means. This is what everyone is saying when they talk about what they deserve, whether they know it or not. Which is why a good follow-up question, anytime you hear someone talk about what they deserve, is simple. What have you done to deserve it? You know, it's... it's uh, how have you earned the thing that you're demanding? In the case of plus-sized people, have you earned special accommodations simply by being fat? Is being fat an accomplishment that should be rewarded? Obviously not, I would think. But she disagrees. She continues. Number one on the list, provide sturdy wider chairs without armrests. In guest rooms, lobbies, and common areas to accommodate different body sizes and types. Number two on the list, ensure beds with strong support and a higher weight capacity, along with providing reinforced chairs and wider bathroom facilities. Number three, make elevators and hallways spacious to allow for easy movement of larger individuals and those utilizing mobility devices. Number four, install grab bars and showers and near toilets. Offer adjustable handheld shower heads and raised toilet seats for added accessibility. Number five, train staff to be respectful, understanding, and accommodating to travelers of all sizes. Number six, provide pool lifts and handrails at the entry of the pool. This will allow for plus size guests and guests with different abilities to enjoy all amenities. Number seven, hotel restaurants should have roomy seating options and sturdy chairs, ensuring that everybody can dine comfortably. Number eight, offer larger beach and pool seating. Provide oversized loungers and seating at the beach and pool areas, allowing travelers of all sizes and abilities to be comfortable. Number nine, hotels should provide size inclusive bathrobes. These should go up to a size 6X and beyond. And hotels should also provide bath sheets or plus size friendly towels so that travelers of all sizes and abilities can use them comfortably. Okay, here's my, uh, I hear everything you're saying. Here's my counter proposal. My counter proposal is what if instead of doing all those things, we do absolutely none of them at all? Uh, and this is an easy answer anyway, as much of what she's demanding is impossible. So let's go back to this one. She wants the hotels to widen their hallways, which means first of all, that she is so big that she's actually encountered hallways that she doesn't fit inside of. She's gotten herself wedged inside hallways like a cat with its head stuck in a glass jar. And rather than this being a wake-up call for her, rather than her saying to herself, wow, this is a part of the building designed for multiple full-sized human beings to walk down at the same time, but I don't fit in it by myself, I must have a problem. Rather than any of that kind of self-introspection, she demands that the hotels change their hallway size, which, by the way, would mean massive renovations totaling in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And in some cases, they'd have to tear down the building completely and rebuild it from scratch. This is the level of narcissism we're dealing with. Rather than, rather than bringing her own caloric intake down somewhere below, you know, I don't know, 6,000 a day, she would prefer to have entire buildings bulldozed and rebuilt from the ground up just to accommodate her. She surveys the choices and says to herself, hmm, you know, either I can, I can make some changes in my own life or everyone and everything else can be drastically altered for my sake. Yeah, the latter option sounds much more reasonable. 
This is egocentricism on steroids. Apparently, her narcissism has grown along with her waist size. It's at the point now where, where they need to remodel the building just to fit her ego inside the building, never mind the rest of her. Now, you know, it's easy enough to mock these outrageous demands, and, and we should mock them, absolutely. You know, when someone can't sit in a normal chair without getting stuck in it or breaking it, and then decide that this is a flaw with the chair and not with themselves, that's an attitude that should be ruthlessly mocked. But it's probably not worth dissecting in specific detail because most people understand how ridiculous this is. You know, if you need a bathrobe the size of a bedsheet, you need to shrink yourself instead of demanding larger bathrobes. Most people get that, I think. But the problem is that this attitude is prevalent across American culture. It, 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 it has come to define American culture, in fact. It's not just fat people. Everyone, especially every alleged marginalized group, now walks through life demanding that the world adjust itself to them. This is why inclusion has become the great virtue of modern life. Unlike actual virtue, inclusion is not something that you do. It's something you demand other people do for you. And it's not just you as yourself that you insist must be included. It's you along with all of your vices. Inclusion is not just a false virtue. It's a Trojan horse for every vice. It is the mantra of weak, selfish people who want the world to sacrifice everything so that they need sacrifice nothing. This is what body positivity and fat acceptance is all about. It's what modern culture is all about. Vice made into virtue. Sacrifice demanded of everyone so that you don't have to make any sacrifices yourself. That's what it's about. Fat people getting stuck in hallways. It's all a mess. And that's why the fat influencer, Jalen Chaney, and really all, anyone who calls himself a fat influencer, all of them today are canceled. And they'll do it for the show today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list for me.